Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Busy show today. We're going to talk first with Dearborn businessman Nasser Beydoun, who's announcing his run for U.S. Senate as a Democrat. We're going to hear why he wants to replace outgoing Senator Debbie Stabenow. Then we'll turn to two local Detroit stories, one about a new public transit plan and another about some criminal investigations that have raised eyebrows in the city. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day and uh, welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and... I'm really glad you've joined us today. Since Senator Debbie Stabenow decided not to run for office again, the race for Michigan Senate seat has been a little quiet. Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin threw her hat into the ring in late February. But after that point, there are really only a few others who have announced their bid for Senate. On Saturday, Ann Arbor attorney and Democratic candidate Zach Burns launched his bid. And on the Republican side of things, State Board of Education member Nikki Snyder launched her bid, as well as Michael Hoover, who worked at Dow Chemical. But this week, someone else from Southeast Michigan has decided to enter this race. Nasser Beydoun is a 58-year-old restaurant owner and former chairman and executive director of the Arab American Arab Chamber of Commerce. He has plans to kick off his campaign today in Detroit. A little later in the hour, we're going to talk about some other things going on in Detroit, including potential changes to the city's public transit lines, as well as possible problems with the Wayne County uh, Medical Examiner's Office. But we want to start today talking with Nasser Beydoun about why he's running for Senate and what he wants to accomplish if he could win this seat. Uh, Nasser, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Good to be here. So let's start with uh, why you are running for Senate. What made you jump into this race? Well, let me ask you this. Do you you think the average American is happy with the politics in this country today? Are they content with what's happening, you know, in Washington and how our government is handling their affairs? You know, there's a lot of uh, discourse and uh, people are fed up with it. And I think that in order to enable change, you need to you know, bring people who have real life experiences, who aren't career politicians, and who wanna come in there and fix things and not find a career, you know, give back to uh, society instead of continuing just to be uh, polit- elected officials. So uh, you haven't held much public office before, uh, but tell me why you are qualified to be a member of, of the U.S. Senate. What's what's in your background that you think uh, really, really lends to your success if you were to win this seat? Well, like, you, you, you know, you're right. I have not held, I have never been elected to public office before, but I have for my entire career served the public, mm-hmm. served the communities, uh, helped people, uh, tried to bring people together, tried to create opportunity, uh, tried to do a lot of the things that government is supposed to do, but, you know, without receiving the salary of a government official. You're running as a Democrat, and I, I wonder what you think makes you uh, a Democrat. You're talking a lot about supporting small businesses and things like that, but um, there are there is a pretty solid Democratic agenda uh, in Washington right now because there is a Democratic president and uh, Democrats control the Senate. They controlled the House until earlier this year. Tell me what makes you um, fit into that party. What 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 beliefs and policies uh, make you a Democrat? 
Well, first of all, I have, you know, my background is uh, small business. I'm an entrepreneur mm -hmm. uh, by nature, uh, but I come from uh, a house where my father worked at Ford Motor Company for 30 years and was a proud member of the UAW. So I understand what it means to have a good paying UAW job. I own small business a couple of small businesses, which basically, as everybody knows, small business is the main economic engine of this country. It creates the most jobs. It invests in the community. Also, I have a track record in human rights and civil rights and helping people out. So I believe that government has a purpose, but I also think that, you know, government has to be fair and balanced and level the playing field and not be skewed towards uh, corporate interest and special interest. So, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, the Senate to represent the working class and the small business owners. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to ask you about some specific issues in, in Washington. There's a lot that has been uh, accomplished in the first few years of uh, President Joe Biden's presidency. So something like the inflation Reduction Act. Uh, tell me what you think of that piece of legislation and, and that approach to the economy. Well, the problem, um, you know, we see where government tries to fix everything instead of trying to reduce the red tape and the burden on people. I'm more for a smaller government than I am for, you know, but I think there was a need for the reduction, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, because, um, you know, we were going in a very inflationary uh, cycle because of all the money that was uh, pushed into the economy through the COVID relief acts, you know, f and all the money that people had to spend and the bottlenecks in the uh, uh, supply chain caused us to get, you know, uh, a, a major inflation uh, period. Uh, so, uh, so you are you're in favor then of the Inflation of Reduction Act? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, and what about things like uh, the Chips and Science Act and the Infrastructure Law? Do you would you have supported that kind of legislation as well? I would because we need to bring manufacturing back to the United States. What COVID showed us is that this global supply chain is not in our best national security interest. We need to be manufacturing critical items in the United States to make sure that we continue to lead the world. And we're self-sufficient in a lot of the things that, you know, are key factors of our economy. So uh, you said earlier that uh, you have a, a, a record on supporting civil rights and civil rights issues. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. I mean, um, you know, when it comes to uh basically basic freedoms um fighting against the no-fly list the watch list you know making sure the government isn't overreaching with the patriot act uh making sure that all citizens are not discriminated against uh standing with the african-american community on discrimination um you know i have a track record and a history of doing that I'm talking with Nasser Beydoun. He is a Dearborn businessman who is kicking off his campaign for U.S. Senate as a Democrat today in Detroit. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, the listeners, as well. Uh, what kind of leadership do you want to see from the next senator for the state of Michigan? Uh, Debbie Stabenow, who's had that job for uh, several decades now, is retiring uh, after next year, and uh, we'll have an election to decide who replaces her. Uh, who do you think should be on the list and what kind of policies should the next senator from Michigan be focused on and why? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today uh, to be part of the conversation. Uh, I, I also want to ask you about um, the, the race itself, Nasser. Um, there's a couple of other candidates in, but the one who's uh, the most prominent, I guess, is Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, who's also a Democrat. Draw some contrasts for me between you and her and uh, in, in this race. Well, first of all, you know, 
my experience is real life experience, you know, being a small business owner, coming from a working class family, um, you know, going through the public uh, education system uh, differentiates me from Alyssa Slotkins, who, uh, you know, is basically uh, went from, you know, college to the CIA to Congress. Um, so, you know, her experience and my experience are vastly different. Do you think there's a difference on issues? Uh, are there things that, that you would do differently, do you think, than she might? I think there's a lot of uh, differences on issues. First of all, how we look at foreign policy. I think uh, how we look at civil rights, how we look at human rights around the world. Um, those are all things that are going to differentiate us during the campaign. And I think the differences will be made more clear as we go around the state of Michigan and people get to know me and see where I stand and how I think and how I relate to a lot of what people in Michigan are thinking and, you know, trying to accomplish. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point, this idea that you, you, you feel like you have a really different view of uh, international affairs and diplomacy than she does. Can you be more specific about the things that you think are different? Sure. I mean, she looks at foreign policy through a um, uh, national security uh, perspective. I look at foreign policy through a uh, you know humanitarian uh, objective uh, position. Um, you know, we've lost a lot of our credibility around the world as a nation. People do not look at us as a beacon of light anymore. Uh, you know, we've basically had two disastrous wars that have lasted over 20 years that she was one of the people that supported. Like, the, I was opposed to the Iraq War from day one. Mm. I knew it was an exped, a fishing expedition. Uh, the government blatantly lied to us. And it cost us trillions of dollars, thousands of American lives, destroyed our credibility. Uh, you know, so this is, a, you know, one of the main differences between us. Mm. You know, I believe that if we believe in hum, uh, democracy and human rights, we have to support it around the world. Whereas a national interest perspective would be, um, you know, what's ever good for our national interest is comes before what our values are. So I also want to ask you about the Middle East in, in particular and, and U.S. policy uh, in the Middle East. I want to get your take on that and specifically uh, U.S. policy toward Israel and toward uh, the Palestinian people. Well, I'm, I'm a strong believer and I've always been a strong believer that uh, there needs to be peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. It needs to be a just and comprehensive peace. And the U.S. needs to do more to push the Israelis uh, to, you know, to be more serious about peace. You can't be pro-peace and continue to occupy, continue to build settlements. And, you know, we need to come to a resolution of that conflict. It's the, in the best interest of everybody in the region. Yeah. And for our own national security interests. And and so in the U.S. Senate, what are the levers that you think you would be able to pull that would put pressure on Israel to to establish a, a more stable peace with the, the Palestinians and one that respects their human rights? Well, we give the Israelis over $3 billion a year mm -hmm. in financial aid. And uh, so I think that we have a lot of leverage, plus we're their strongest ally and their strongest backer. So we need to use our leverage to basically, um, you know, make sure that the Israelis are serious about peace, that the Palestinians are serious about peace, and to push once and for all end this conflict. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Mo in Detroit. Mo, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephen. Uh -huh. uh, so um, as a question for the, the candidate. You know, we just came out of four years of having a president with no political experience. And I think the majority of Detroiters, certainly, and uh, according to the election, Michiganders, uh, thought that that was an absolute disaster, hmm. and think that 
political experience is actually really important in being a prominent elected political figure. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious why uh, the candidate thinks that he would somehow be different than someone else without political experience. And lastly, just a a note that uh, the the words, I'm a small business owner and I believe in small government, truly do sound like Republican talking points. (laughs) So I'm wondering how how deep his commitment is to actual... uh, left and left government. Yeah, Mo. Um, uh, hang up and take thanks over here. Great questions, Mo. Really appreciate the call. Uh, Nasser, what do you say to that? Uh, the, the idea that, that someone without political experience, without public service, um, you know, elected office, uh, hasn't always turned out all that great for, for, for citizens and for voters. Uh, what, makes you, what makes you different, do you think, uh, in your candidacy? Well, first of all, you know, being compared to Donald Trump, uh, there's a huge difference between him and I. Um, but, second but of not all, in terms I, of but not in terms of your experience, right? I mean, he didn't have any political experience either, and and well, I think what most question is is what what bearing does that have on your ability to do the job? You know, I have you know I have never been to a, a, a point a, you know elected to political office, but I have a. Uh, a, tra- a, a long history of political experience, working on campaigns, working behind the scenes with politicians, helping politicians get elected, uh, supporting politicians. So, and I have a track record of community service, uh, work, serving on boards, serving on institutions, helping people out, um, making sure that you know people are treated fairly. I think this also. I don't think that political experience necessarily means, you know, being elected to office. Political experience means helping and serving your community in many different aspects. Uh, And in regards to um, the second part of uh yeah the, the focus question. on on small business and and small government uh, that those do sound a little like republican talking points i know that that's just one area of your beliefs and there are lots of others that that do seem to line up with the democratic party but but address that okay well what does the average american want he wants a good paying job the opportun- uh, opportunity for his children, which means a good public education, to live in a safe neighborhood, and to basically uh, live in a clean environment. And other than that, he wants government to stay out of their way. Uh, and he wants government to be fair, not skewed to the upper 1% or, you know, and there should be safety nets in place to help those people who kind of fall through that crack. But the role of government is to create a b- opportunity and provide education and provide health care and make sure that the level of the playing field is level for everybody. Yeah. And that's the government that I believe in. Okay. Uh, Nasser Beydoun. Uh, really great to have you here, and we look forward to hearing more from you as uh, we get into campaign season and this race for U.S. Senate heats up. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to stay in the region but pivot to Detroit's Public Transit Agency, which is trying to improve ridership in the city. They've got a new plan out that they announced yesterday. Malachi Barrett from Bridge Detroit is going to join us. He's been covering it and following what this is all about. We also want to continue to hear from you on the phones. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us, and we can make you part of the program that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station.
You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. If you're someone who relies on public transit in the city of Detroit, then you know about the tremendous problems that DDOT, the city's Department of Transportation, has had, and that those problems have become more acute since the pandemic struck in 2020. The transit agency has had problems with low ridership. They have really, really steep hiring challenges, and there have been consistent service disruptions. And this is partly because uh, fewer people overall need transit services as remote work has grown in popularity, but it's also due to the department's inability to recruit and retain drivers. Uh, But that doesn't mean that uh, the department is sitting back and just letting all of that happen. On Monday, DDOT's director released a draft plan that starts another round of public engagement to ultimately redesign our transit system in Detroit to better meet the needs of riders. To discuss what this reimagined plan looks like, what the process for public input is, and what the transit agency is planning to do to serve Detroiters better. We've got Malachi Barrett here with us. He is a reporter with Bridge Detroit, and he has been covering Detroit's transit agency. Malachi, uh, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Good morning. So DDOT says it's working to reimagine the agency. What does that mean? And what are the things that it wants to do better uh, that uh, it is struggling with right now? Well, uh, Director uh, Mikkel Oglesby has described uh, this DDOT reimagined process as a comprehensive operational analysis. Uh, you know, we could just call it a master plan. Um, and it's the first time DDOT has done something like this in, in quite a while. Uh, the director came here in 2020, um, and it was kind of one of the first things he started asking city officials about, you know, when was the last time we really did a major public outreach campaign, really kind of looked at what we're doing well, what we're not doing well, where are the needs, and how do we you know, adjust to meet those needs. And this is kind of the process that's been born out of out of that. Um, and essentially the idea is to engage the public, um, you know, through a variety of different pop-up meetings. And, and now there's a, a bus that's going around a mobile engagement center, especially marked, it'd be hard to miss it. Um, that's going out to different uh, bus stops around town to, uh, you know, further explain the plan and get more feedback. And then put all of that into something that would, um, you know, essentially outline the next couple of years of service improvements. Um, So it's essentially a needs assessment to help DDOT decide how to go forward with restructuring. Um, You know, given all of the different impacts of the pandemic, you know, we've seen a lot of changes in how people use DDOT. Mm -hmm. The peak times have changed. You know, it's not just, um, you know, it used to be that the main, uh, the, the busiest times were in the morning and the afternoon. People were using it to get to work. Uh, people are riding later. People are riding more on the weekends. Um, people have changed their habits up quite a bit. Um, there's also a large number of capital needs to get that need to get addressed. People have had, um, you know, major calls for bus shelters. Um, I think it's only four percent of the stops in the city actually have a, a protected shelter. Like a covered. There's yeah. been some. Yeah, right. To protect you from the elements. I mean, I'm sure anybody that's ridden uh, a bus has had the experience of being caught in the rain or the snow. Um, I, I know I have, and it's not fun. So those are, you know, some of the things that they're planning to address. But I think, you know, the major difference that people are going to see is um, changes in the actual routes. Um, so there's plans to, you know, like I said, expand the hours of the service as mm-hmm. well as speed up the service. Um, people have, in the transit um, community, um, Folks a lot smarter about this stuff than I am have been mm-hmm. calling for uh, something called bus rapid transit, mm-hmm. um, which essentially would create uh, dedicated lanes um, that that allow buses to avoid traffic. It's almost kind of like light rail without the rail. Right. Um, so yeah, we can we can talk about some of the details, but that's essentially what you know the director is aiming to do with this plan. So so before we get to the the details, and it is a really detailed plan, um, and it requires some some real explanation. But but I want to talk just a little more about what the experience is like for people right now who who rely on the bus. Um, you know, since the pandemic, it seems. Like, uh, in particular, uh, the city's uh, impoverished population has really been disserved by by public transit. Uh, that's at least the sense that I get, and that's uh, what I hear from people. 
but can we talk just a little more about what is happening and and why and how acute i guess uh the problems are with ddot yeah so i think you can really attribute it probably to two things it's it's the covid pandemic and then it's uh this major shortage of drivers that we had and and even those two things are probably somewhat interlinked um but you know, the main challenge that Yale has right now is it just doesn't have enough operators to provide um, the service that people expect. Um, and this has gotten better uh, over the last couple of years. Um, Director Oglesby has said that the department has become a lot more efficient with its uh, reduced number of drivers. They're providing around 90% of, of service. He'd like to get that number up. But he actually thinks that if they hire more drivers, we could see better service than before. Um, but, you know, I think the problem is that the drivers are underpaid and, and everybody acknowledges this um they're they're underpaid when compared to their peers at smart um as well as uh you know other transit uh systems in in oakland county and in other parts of um you know the region um and this has caused uh you know some really some really challenging uh retention problems for the department where people will go through uh the training uh the city will pay to get the bus riders uh trained up and then they'll seek a higher salary elsewhere um, and so that's caused issues with, um, you know, just getting enough buses on the road. And so when I talk to people, you know, I hear a lot about how they're waiting um, long hours, in some cases, you know, more than an hour for uh, a connection to come pick them up. Hmm. Um, you know, later in the evening, there are fewer buses running late. So, you know, if you happen to to go out somewhere and need a ride home, you know, you might you might be left having to call an Uber uh, instead of catching a bus. Um Ridership is rebounding in the aftermath of the pandemic. Um, it still is about half of the pre-pandemic levels uh, last I checked about a month ago. Um, and the fleet of buses carried uh, a million more passengers than it did in 2021, though. So, you know, just some context, you know, we're doing a lot better than kind of the height of the pandemic, but I guess that should also be kind of expected there. Yeah. But, you know, Oglesby has said that the bus driver shortage is, is the biggest barrier to improving service. And they're in the process right now of negotiating some increased salaries. Um, the city uh, council and the mayor have added extra funding into the department's budget uh, to pay for that. Um, hard to get a sense really of what the number will be. Uh, the city council has advocated for starting the wage at $29 uh, per hour, which would be a really significant bump right now. It starts at $15 per hour. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, you know, we're, we're trying to talk with the transit union and get a better sense of how those negotiations are going. But that seems like the biggest thing standing in the way right now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with Malachi Barrett. He is a reporter for Bridge Detroit. He's been covering uh, the city and uh, city government and uh, in particular the new plans to kind of reimagine DDOT, the city's transportation agency. Uh, we're talking about those plans and the level of service that Detroiters are getting right now from uh, the bus uh, company and the bus service here in the city. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call. We'd love to hear from folks who use Detroit's public buses. Uh, what's the service like? How can the service improve? What do you want to see Detroit's transit office do to make buses faster or more frequent along routes? Uh, also, would love to hear from folks who work for DDOT, uh, people who drive buses uh, about what uh, what that's like right now and uh, what can be improved uh, to keep more drivers uh, on the job. The city is losing uh, drivers at a, a, a kind of an alarming rate right now. 313-577-1019 uh, is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we can work into the conversation. Okay, Malika, let's dig a little into this uh, reimagining plan. There are three tiers the city has created for bus frequency depending on ridership. Talk about how that is going to how that's going to work. Yeah, so this plan uh, establishes a, a kind of hierarchy of, of different routes that are defined by the ridership uh, that they receive. So the tier one routes are, you know, the six major hub streets that kind of, you know, spoke out from the wheel of of downtown, uh, you know, if you're familiar with that kind of planning analogy of how our streets work in, De in Detroit, mm -hmm. you know, they span across the city, carry half of all of the daily rivers. These are your main streets like Woodward, Jefferson, Gratiot, Grand River. Um, and these are being flagged for something called uh, bus rapid transit, which I mentioned earlier. 
there's a few ways to do this, but generally the idea is to make uh, dedicated transit lanes so that the buses can avoid traffic, uh, be faster and more efficient. Um, so for example, what you could see is, you know, if you ride the, the number three Grand River bus, um, you could go from a frequency of having a bus arrive every 20 minutes on the weekdays to running every 10 minutes. Uh, Woodward and Gratchet could go from every 15 minutes to every seven and a half minutes. So the idea there is to, yeah, again, make them faster and more efficient. Um, another important change is the expansion of service hours. Uh, some routes are going to go to 24-7 uh, for the first time. Mm -hmm. Others are getting weekend service hours. Um, every network uh, or every route in the network uh, is expected to see service uh, every 30 minutes or better. So ideally, that's that's about as long as you would wait for a bus to arrive. Um, and then there's some other kind of interesting things that uh, are kind of aimed at enhancing the regional mobility. So uh, Director Oglesby has talked to me about how in order for this to be successful, they have to work really closely with the regional transit authority and the uh, SMART, the Suburban Mobility Authority for Regional Transportation. Uh, and that's, you know, these are all kind of interconnected systems. There's a larger effort going on right now to find out how does DDOT better integrate with things like the queue line, the people mover, uh, ride sharing, uh, scooters, and all of that stuff. Um, there's been some discussion of uh, integrating all of those fare systems to make it easier. You know, you have kind of a one-stop shop or, you know, um, something that's a little bit more streamlined to buy tickets. So you're not kind of fumbling through your uh, phone to, to pull up different apps. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a, a few... Uh, interesting extensions that, that people might find. Uh, the number nine Jefferson bus will now uh, move north to Mac Avenue um, at the edge of its east side route. And that's, you know, to improve connections uh, for folks uh, who are in kind of like the Morningside uh, area, but also to improve access to shopping. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a couple of different routes now that connect to grocery stores that didn't before uh, college campuses like UF Dearborn and, um, and Wayne County Community College. Um, there's, uh, I think, at least one route that's recommended for discontinuation. Um, there's a new route that's being added that will operate between Belle Isle and will stop at the beach, take you all the way out to the Gordie Howe Bridge. So there's, um, you know, quite a lot to go through here. Um, there are a lot of documents available online. People can go to DDOT's website. Um, we've also posted them on, on bridgedetroit.com, where you can really just kind of thumb through and, and you know, um, I think it's going to be kind of a, a longer process of talking with transit advocates about, you know, what are some of the benefits of these connections? Mm -hmm. Where are some things that could be tweaked and changed? Um, it's really going to depend on the experience of the riders themselves. So that's going to be a valuable resource uh, for DDOT and, and for us as we try to understand that plan. They're going to be collecting feedback uh, throughout the summer. Um, like I said, there's a mobile uh engagement bus that's going to go around to different bus stops um, they haven't announced really the schedule for that so um, you know as of right now I think you're just going to have to kind of catch them out there but this is being revised um, and is slated for implementation over over a couple of years so I think one thing that you know is important to note uh, director Oglesby has said to me that like if people don't like this plan mm -hmm. he wants to hear about it yes. um, this is an opportunity to change it um, and and what's you know, what we're seeing in this plan right now is a reflection of the conversations that have already happened. Uh, but this is, a you know, an ongoing process. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Uh, let's go to Frank in Green Oak Township. Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Stephen. Um, I retired from Smart as a driver after uh, almost 13 years. And, mm. um, and I, I would make two points is that the uh, uh, good – uh, affordable housing is in Detroit, and the good jobs paying well are in the suburbs. And uh, Detroit bus system, the way it is now, and the smart bus system mm -hmm. can't get over that seam. There's a seam along Eight Mile and and Telegraph Road. Maybe mm -hmm. I should call it more like a scar. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and to you know, to transit, there's a Plymouth Road line uh, that runs into Livonia that the, uh, DDOT runs that is, you know, from what I've seen is heavily used. Uh, you used to be able to take Woodward bus all the way out to Clawson. That was back when the Detroit urban rail or some kind of a thing was still part of that. Sure. Uh, the second point is, uh, is about the drivers. Um, you know, uh, drivers are human beings and, uh, they require calories for input. We all do. Mm -hmm. And, but you also have, uh, the human being needs to eliminate. Um, this is probably the biggest thing why people don't want this job. It's a, and, I, and I've said it before, it's a crap job, no pun intended. But 
Um, you know, uh, th- this is, you know, leads to long-term health problems, you know, your kidneys, your, you know, bowels gives cancer. Um, you know, these are the things. And, and then you have like half the population. Um, so you you're know, saying that it was a surprise, but they're female and they have a whole other different set of circumstances and neither none of those issues are addressed so so frank i I just want to be clear you're you're saying that the the driving the bus doesn't afford you the opportunity to 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 eat or to go to the bathroom uh is that what's correct okay correct as a a matter of fact there's a speedway station there at jefferson and uh, i-375 and uh there's one fixture in there one toilet one sink and ddot drivers smart drivers from uh, the routes in Wayne County and Woodward uh, have to share that with Speedway's customers yeah. and the considerable homeless population. Yeah, yeah. That's the only place to go for for uh, the drivers to go in that area. Wow. You know, Frank, they I, don't go through transit. Yeah. Yeah. Frank, I was not aware of, of that issue, so I'm really glad you called and and shared that with, with our listeners. Uh, Malachi, let's talk a little about drivers and, and the care that they, you know, need from from their employer, but then also Frank's point about, uh, you know, the the, the division between uh, DDOT service and smart service. I mean, I know we're doing a little better with some smart buses that that, that do come into the city, but but that's been a long time issue here in Southeast Michigan. But let's first talk about the the drivers and, uh, you know, uh, the tension between the drivers and, and DDOT. Yeah, I, I think this is, uh, I'm, re- I'm really glad uh, Frank brought this up here because, you know, I, I have talked with uh, some folks over at the ATU, um, the, the transit union for bus drivers, and it's just really important to know this is a tough job. This is a really, this is a really difficult job. It's physically demanding. It mm-hmm. requires your attention uh, at long periods of time, especially in inclement weather, you know, when you're driving through fog uh, or, or snow, rain, sleet. Um, the union leader I, I was talking to only can recall, um, I think two times he said over his like 40 year career where they've stalled bus service due to the weather. Um, and it takes a lot of training. I mean, these are specialized positions. You think of, um, you know, there's kind of a similar issue with, uh, the truck driver community, people who have CDLs, you know, it takes a lot to train somebody up to, to be able to operate a bus. Um, it's, it's definitely a skill. And I would suggest it's also kind of a, a safety issue too. I mean, we, we did a story a couple uh, months back about, uh, preventable crashes and, and lawsuits and, um, you know, having well-trained people who are taken care of and have their needs met and, you know, are able to focus on their job, um, you know, reduces the potential for that stuff. But yeah, I mean, uh, drivers uh, feel like they're not being paid enough for the difficult job that they have to do. They have to, um, you know, I think it's important too to like, just think of the, the atmosphere of a bus sometimes can get, um you know, a little confrontational bus drivers have told me about being sure. uh, assaulted, assaulted by people. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's been a lot, uh, the department has done to try to improve safety on the buses. Um, you know, the interactions between bus drivers and the public is something I hear on both sides. Uh, actually a couple of people that I talked to at the Rosa Parks transit center earlier this week had, had kind of complained the bus drivers actually need to kind of dial the temperature back a little bit. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is uh, it's just a really difficult job, and I think people feel like they're not being fairly compensated for it. Um, in terms of smart, I, I think definitely a goal is to, you know, improve that regional connection so that people who are on the other side of Eight Mile or, you know, in Livonia on the other side of the city, um, can get into Detroit to work uh, as well as come experience the downtown. And yeah. that's you know a major a major uh, part of this as well is to make it easier for visitors to kind of come down the uh, D2A2, I think it's called, the bus that goes to Ann Arbor, I mm-hmm. think has seen some success. Um, maybe more so from people in Detroit going to Ann Arbor to go check out some of the restaurants there instead of vice versa. But, um, you know, that's definitely a component of this as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Malachi Barrett, uh, always great to have you here. Uh, to keep us uh, up to date on what's going on in uh, city government in Detroit. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you back to talk more about uh, what DDOT uh, does to get all of this uh, all of this going. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. 
All right, uh, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to stay in Detroit and check out some controversy surrounding the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office and some determinations that it has made. Also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number, and you can go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Thanks for listening. When someone dies under mysterious circumstances, that death is investigated by a medical examiner. In Detroit, that work is left up to the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office, which has a really high volume of work every year. Their task is really important. They need to determine why someone died, often with limited information at their disposal. Recently, the families of two shooting victims in Detroit filed a million-dollar civil rights claim against the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office. That's because in two separate cases, homicide declarations for individuals who died by gunfire were overturned and reclassified as suicides following Detroit Police Department homicide investigations. To talk more about these cases, why they were deemed suicides, and the broader potential problems related to homicide investigations in Detroit, we've got WDET reporter Eli Newman here with us, who has been covering these two cases. Eli, Eli, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. Yeah. So uh, there are these two families suing the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office. Tell us uh, quickly what happened in these two cases and why the determinations about their deaths were changed. Well, the two cases uh, involved two different individuals. Uh, for the earliest one was Kenesha Coleman. This was um, a 25-year-old mother of two who um, died from a, a um, and I should say some of the stuff I'm going to des- describe is kind of graphic, mm-hmm. but um, died of a, of a, a gunshot wound to her abdomen. Um, this was in July 2020. Um, uh, while there was an initial homicide investigation, medical examiners declared her death a homicide. Some eight months later, it was changed to a suicide based off of um, polygraph um, uh, testimony from witnesses at the scene. Um, this kind of uh, went against some of uh, the information that uh, her mother was told um, following following the death regarding um, just how 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 the wound displayed itself, you know, initial conversations with police investigators. Um, and so uh, that kind of change, especially that far removed from uh, the shooting, what was a real uh, a shock to um, the family. And in the second um, case, uh, this is involving um, a young man by the name of Isaiah White. He was 22 years old, um, died in uh, September 2021. This was from a, uh, a shotgun wound um, to the back of the head. Um, police initially communicated that this was a, a homicide investigation. Some weeks later, it was overturned and changed to a suicide. Um, uh, and family um, say that they haven't really been told the rationale behind some of those changes. And I should say both of these cases do uh, uh, involve the city of Detroit homicide uh, unit in terms of these investigations. Um, that's the kind of the thread that runs through both of this. Also, that all these deaths are, are recent, that this is kind of a post or a pandemic era um, time where um, police resources um, investigation, uh, gun violence in general was, was up yeah. and, and um, uh, staffing was down. Yeah. Uh, so we have a clip here of how Isaiah White's parents feel about the case and the change in determination about his death. I want to listen to that. They never notified us. And we had called him many, many times. Called, emailed, you know, and nothing. It's a cover-up. That's it. Nothing else. There's a cover-up with my son's homicide. They're pretty clear there that they think there is something amiss uh, or a foul about uh, all of this. What are the possibilities that there is some kind of cover-up? And 
Who would look into that in the medical examiner's office? Well, I, I think the theory that that uh, both both of these families and their attorney um, feel that is happening is that um, that the, these deaths are being reclassified to uh, change broader statistics in terms of how to get rid of some homicides. To get rid of some homicides, and you know, um, and I think uh, I think that there's that's the the rub of all this whole thing is that they're they're taking this issue to federal court because they haven't necessarily found this remedy in other avenues. I mean, uh, you know, Wayne County, Wayne County, uh, the Wayne County Commission should uh, does oversee these kinds of contracts with the morgue. What what happens there? Um, obviously, we have oversight boards in in Detroit, um, but those that kind of oversight has faced a lot of recent challenges. I mean, there's a there's a big investigation going on with the, the board of uh, uh, board of police commissioners. Um, so when, when there are problems against officer or officer conduct or the way that these investigations get communicated to family, there are these avenues that can uh, exact some sort of change. But um, there have been issues, systemic issues with all of that, um, in re- especially recently. Yeah, yeah. I also want to play a clip from Dr. Carl Schmidt, who used to work at the Wayne County Morgue, the medical examiner's office. And he's talking here about the problems that he faced when he worked there. Two of the freezers are the same age as the building. This building was inaugurated in 1995. The equipment, per se, is actually... 27 years old. Old equipment. Uh, I know I've heard lots of other things about the Wayne County Morgue. Uh, it's a place that I've actually been uh, a number of times as a reporter, dating back to the to the early 90s uh, when we had similar kinds of problems. I mean, part of the problem is volume, right, uh, mm-hmm. and and staffing. But uh, talk about. Uh, what the problems are with the Wayne County Morgue and whether they have something to do with these these two cases and, and these determinations. Sure. And so in, in that situation, Dr. Schmidt was talking about the actual conditions of the morgue. They were having refrigeration issues uh, a couple of years ago, so much so that there was uh, during one of our uh, power outages, um, the, the refrigerator lost power and there was deco- uh, uh, issues with uh, decomposition. Th- um, uh, the, the actual conditions of, of, of these bodies. But, you know, I, I spoke with some of these medical examiners. They say that the county oversees roughly like 3,500 examinations every year. And what they told me in the course of this investigation is that half of those cases get a pending status. So you, you might imagine that somebody comes out of an examination, we know whether or not they died of natural causes or if they died of a homicide or of a suicide. Um, uh, the coroners are saying that generally they give this pending status, which means we don't necessarily know or we're still investigating for half of the examinations that they do. And then, you know, a a final decision is made sometime later. Um, The rationale there was that there's a lot of drug-related deaths is what they told me. But of course, there are cases like this. I think this is one of the, the, um, this kind of revision, I think they put that into this category, given some of the documentation that existed alongside of it. But um, the, there's, they're at half staff um, in, in the last I checked um, in terms of how many medical exam- There's like four medical examiners that are looking for eight. So you can imagine, you know, a small number of people overseeing a large volume of these examinations. And what they told me is that when we make these, when we make these kinds of changes, we don't necessarily have the capacity to go out and call a family and let them know, you know, the rationale behind it. You know, so, sometimes there's a conversation with the police department, who's going to take lead on uh, these kind of, these difficult conversations. Um, and I think that we, what we've seen in these two cases is, is that those conversations left families wanting a little bit more of an explanation. What is the likelihood uh, that these will be resolved in a way that A, makes these families more satisfied with the outcome, but B, addresses these larger questions about the staffing and the funding for the medical examiner's office and the way that uh, we investigate homicides in the city. So, um, you know, like we said earlier, there is a lawsuit that's going on in, in federal court, and I mm-hmm. think the family is hoping that that exacts some kind of change. There's also been some recent changes going on with the morgue. I mean, for the last 10 years or so, since around 2011, the University of Michigan um, Medical School oversaw the entire uh, 
uh, morgue itself. Mm -hmm. You know, all the employees that were working there were U of M staff pathologists. Um, that has now uh, shifted uh, in large part because of some of uh, the, these issues that we, we've been discussing. Um, that's uh, transitioned to Wayne State uh, University last October. And so now there's like a new administration in place. And they have hopes that, hey, they're, we're going to get our staffing up. The contract is a little bit uh, a meatier in terms of the actual money, $72 million over five years. Um, I think they're hoping that that's going to bring staffing and uh, resources up to where they need to be. But I think there is a, a lingering um, doubt that these families have about enacting real change. You know, I think it's a really, um, there's this idea that that the way that the police have been operating is something that is really hard to change. And so I think they're hoping to bring light on these issues, but ultimately I think there is a little bit of hesitation in terms of what is the long-term effect? Yeah. How can we actually make you know a, 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 a necessary change? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Eli Newman, reporter here at WDET. It's always great to have you in studio. Uh, to talk about uh, these stories. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. We're going to talk with photographer Stephen McGee about some of the most interesting neighborhoods in Detroit. He's someone who has been shooting the city of Detroit for a really long time. Really going to uh, looking forward to a great conversation with him about things he's seen and experienced. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>